But where are you really from? A podcast about the Asian American struggle. Hey everyone, Angela here. Hope you're having a fantastic Asian Pacific American Heritage Month celebrating everything to do with our community. Jesse and I are taking a few weeks off to recharge and plan out awesome new content for you for our next season. And in the meantime, we wanted to share with you more voices from the community through other awesome AAPI podcasts. This week, we're introducing you to Real Asian Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring the stories and themes from Asian and Asian American film. In the following episode, the four co-hosts, Raymond, Alan, Renee, and Baldwin, discuss the classic animated film Princess Mononoke, directed by the legendary Hayao Miyazaki. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Real Asian Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's real with two E's like film reel. And tune in for season four because we might just be seeing some of these folks again on a special crossover episode coming up soon. Enjoy! So that's where we get right to it. And I'm going to start with you, uh, Alan. And uh, what's your favorite thing about this movie? You know, there's so much. But to really dial it down, what my favorite thing was, Miyazaki told a very complex story without holding anything back. He portrayed a lot of themes, mankind versus nature, and the war between it and how one progresses while coexisting together, while at the same time showing this beautiful story that that has complex characters, complex villains, complex protagonists. And the, the reason why this holds up to me is because, gosh, even though this was made back in, I believe it was 19, in the 1997. Mm-hmm. I mean, despite the fact that it was made in 97, the reason why it still resonates today is because it focuses on the story rather than, you know, very expensive CGI to push the story forward. Mm. And I think that's what holds up to me is more the thematic aspects of the movie and the storytelling rather than anything that, you know, Marvel Endgame could really throw to us. Although nothing hating against them. They're, it's a great <laughs> film. But I think the beauty of this is the storytelling and the themes behind it. I think one of my favorite things about the movie is, you know, you can look at me um, and see that it matters to me that we have strong female leads. So even, (laughs) that's right. Uh, Yeah, so even (laughs) though the story starts off with Ashitaka, um, I really feel that that he being there is kind of just a springboard to kind of showcase the struggle that you have between these two different really strong female leads. You have, well, actually like three, four. I mean, like there's so many. Um, And, you know, you have the leader of this village who's basically rehabilitated women from brothels. And then you have this young, fearless kind of, uh, you know, wolf princess who basically uh, is accepted by this other ethereal world as in a, in a sense, like you still see conflict and strife in there too, right? Each domain has their own struggles, right? And by that definition alone, every single character, every single facet has a three-dimensional kind of viewing versus just this very flat kind of thing. So, you know, I think that's one of the biggest things why I feel like even though, you know, in 97, when it was first uh, released, it still holds up even, you know, over 20 years later because of the fact that it was so ahead of its time. And that's one of the main things of the reason why I enjoy it. 
I'm a huge Hayao Miyazaki fan, and I love this movie. Uh, the first time I saw it was a really long time ago. I think I was in high school, so it was about 15 years ago. In terms of my favorite aspect of the movie, it's a little bit basic compared to your guys' takes, but um, I would say it has to be the incredible visionary animation that was brought out by Miyazaki. You know, I, I really do love the fact that it, it has all of these messages hidden within it. But for me, the staying power has always been how this movie makes you feel. So for me, the feeling I get from watching this movie is just total nostalgia. You know, even though I'm an adult, um, while I'm watching the movie, I feel like I'm watching it as a kid. And that, that partly has to do with the fact that we're seeing the movie from the, the protagonist's point of view, which are like their younger kids. Right. Right. Um, but it also has to do with the, the atmosphere of the childlike innocence that we get from it. You know, the animation is just so beautiful. It's just like watching a moving painting with its uh, depiction of nature. Mm. And the characters themselves, are they're alive. Like, the nature is alive. Um, that's how it's shown. It feels like they have their own personality. Yeah, and the, oh. the, world, the world building, it just takes you away into uh, Miyazaki's imagination and, and makes you want to live in it. So for me, uh, my favorite thing, a little bit of what Baldwin said, it really is the, he says kind of like the artistry and the animation, but it really is the artistry of the movie for me. You know, this movie is one of those rare achievements that's able to withstand the test of time over years. And that's really one of the first things that I noticed when I watched it more recently in preparing for this podcast. It came out during a time when Animation in the, US, in the U.S. was typically geared towards children, right? We think of Toy Story and Iron Giant, stuff like that. Maintaining a lighthearted plot, most per se. Kids. Without kids, right? You know, yeah. and even me as a kid, I, of course, I enjoyed it or younger. Um, without touching upon any deeper themes, more or less. This movie did the exact opposite. It's a darker movie that commands your attention to the grace and flaws of the human condition and kind of touches upon the existential crisis that we are still dealing with today, which is incredible. I mean, he really kind of prophesized it. So Miyazaki tells this compelling story of Prince Ashitaka, who is caught in a bind between humanity's desire to expand and industrialize, but also the need to preserve the sanctity of the environment and nature. And so he does all of this through animation, providing us vibrant scenes, like you said, Baldwin. And the, the, the sequences are fantastical. The, the colors and everything, it just really pops. Um, I look at how detailed the eyes and the mouths were of the animals to convey the emotions, which is yep. sometimes a hit or miss, right? We kind of think of Sonic, the first iteration of mm. Sonic, where it could be really frightening and weird. <laughs> but in this case, he did it really well, and it kind of gave them... Uh, an emotion and a, and a realism to it. There's a story where Miyazaki describes how he came up with the, the tentacles spewing out of the boar demon Nago in the beginning of the movie. Um, he says that he visualizes it. That's how he visualizes it, what happens when he personally himself is enraged or furious, right? He kind of feels like these snake-like things coming out of his pores, which is crazy. But to have that and then translate it into a drawing that's only possible through animation and not computer-generated special effects. You know, again, during the 90s, which is really incredible. So that level of detail, that level of care, and every single frame or scene in the movie is what I really loved about it. And you can really tell by watching it through and through. Renee, I want to dive right into the central theme of the environment. 
What do you think Miyazaki is trying to ask of humans in this in this movie? Uh, you know, I think that's a really really great question. And one thing that basically has kind of transcended several generations at this point now is the fact that you see you you can physically see climate change. There's actually this yeah. one scene within the movie where Ashitaka has just saved two of these villagers who basically nearly got slaughtered by Maro and uh, the two other wolves and and San yeah. and as they they travel through the forest and get to the clearing where they see Iron Town, you can visually see Ashitaka taken aback by just how garish it looks up against yeah. the mountainside mm. and and the lake. Right. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you can see just how absolutely humans ravage our world. Right. When you take into account who are the villains from them from that movie, it's absolutely humans. Right. They're the villains. Mm. But you can also one thing it does paint is, is beautifully uh, also encapsulates how what Lady Eboshi has done to the village, which as basically, you know, there are some, this balance of, uh, you know, the industrial complex, basically, and how we need it within our everyday life. But, you know, apart, I think at the very end of it, the question is, you know, these advances that the human civilization have been able to provide are amazing feat, right? We've been able to accomplish space travel all the way to even having uh, supercomputers within, that fit within the palm of our hands. But really, at what cost? Uh, I say is, we just all is, uh, <laughs> pop the computers right now. This is turned a uh, dark corner. Everyone Down with Zoom. Like, no. <laughs> but I, I think you're supposed to have an existential crisis. I think you're supposed to feel this conflict between Am I what I'm doing is what is what I'm doing wrong or, you know, is it just the human condition? I think the emperor was definitely on the extreme by saying that he wanted to go ahead and lop off the head of the Nightwalker, right? The forest spirits mm -hmm. to obtain eternal life. So maybe we don't have to go that crazy, but definitely be more conscientious. There's actually this one really beautiful line that Lady Eboshi says. Every day that we cut trees and dig for iron, the forest and its creatures grow weaker. My way, there is no loss of life, Jigo. So mm. she's still trying to do it conscientiously. You can kind of <sighs> see that, but at the same time, you yeah. know it's killing. It's killing the forest, right? I, I'm going to disagree a bit uh, with Renee's take. I, I think at the end of the day, what he's trying to say is, regardless of what happens in the future, humans progressing is almost as natural as water flowing down a river. Mm. And by doing so, there's going to be, it's going to lay into its path destruction of the natural world you live in. And the question I think it begs, to, begs our audience to answer is, how do we live with that? Because right. ultimately, at the end of the movie, sure, they you know, return kind of the status quo to nature, but at the end of the day, like Irontown is still there and they're going to continue to progress. And yeah. it's more of the sad realization of despite every effort that you have, despite Patagonia's efforts to help, you know, climate mm -hmm. change or et cetera, there's going to be a situation in which humans continue yeah. to encroach on the natural world. So has there been progress? There's been more awareness. There's been the Biden administration mm. cutting the Keystone yeah. pipeline. But at right. the end of the day, humans are in and of themselves, ourselves, going to continue to expand into the world and drain its resources. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like there has been a, some progress because when this movie was made, it's 1997. I don't think the the terms envi- environmentalism and conserv- conservatism mm, there, there weren't really big buzzwords at the time, right? Um, I think it was it wasn't until uh, what's that Al Gore movie that came out? Uh, like, the, the Inconvenient Truth. Inconvenient or, Truth. Yeah. Inconvenient Truth, yeah. which I think it was like sort of a pop culture ph- phenomenon and made people yeah. see. You know, yeah. climate change is real and it has a big effect. But yeah, I think this movie, for sure, the core conflict of it is the relationship between humanity and nature. Um, and I, I agree with both you guys in, in some ways, like humans are are seen as the villains, at least they're depicted as the villains. They're, mm-hmm. they're depicted very negatively and they're, they're definitely the initiator of the conflict. You know, their greed, the selfishness and the need to grow and dominate creates these destructive consequences for the force and they're like complete completely unaware of it yeah and and in the movie it leads to anger and hatred and it makes these characters do these horrible things um like we mentioned at the beginning the boar nago it's it turned into a demon and it it wasn't because it was uh shot by the gun but it's because it was consumed by hatred and its suffering that corrupted it one of the fascinating things I found with this film and Miyazaki's unique ability is to make compelling arguments on either side without necessarily like spoon feeding or prodding us to, to go one way or the other, because I do kind of understand both sides. Like, um, and I, I hate to kind of be on the fence and it sounds like we're all on the fence in a way, but I, I think that is the message that he's able to, to present to us these tectonic shifts in the world and the conflicts that that inevitably happen during that time of transition. We go through Bronze Age and then Silver Age and the different ages where humanity has had to industrialize and advance and progress as a society. That's not to suggest that humans need to drop everything of what they're doing to evolve because that's part of human nature. We evolve. Or to even say, we need to quickly advance as a society by any means necessary. It's that these are the choices we make. And unfortunately, these are the consequences that we have to face when we make those choices. Even at the very end of the movie, we're not necessarily left with a, with a resolution per se. San still hates the humans and she goes and re- lives with the wolves that are in the forest. Uh, Lady Iboshi says we're going to rebuild a better iron town. And Ashitaka embodies the possibility of like, like the symbiotic relationship between humanity and nature, because he's like, I'm going to go help rebuild Irontown because he's, so he's, he's understanding yeah. of that, but he's like, I'll come and visit you with the wolves in the forest whenever I get a chance to. So, I mean, it's kind of like yeah. we're back where we started. Right. Yeah. I mean, sort of, I definitely see the, uh, you know, what you said about uh, Ashitaka being like the symbiotic, um, you know, I think he definitely is that bridge between um, the, you know, the mythical, the, the environmental and also being able to find that common ground, right? Mm. We all care about our own survival. My favorite line actually comes from a leper, uh, Osa. Um, mm. Basically what's happened is that uh, Ashitaka has taken all the way back to the secret of what uh, Iboshi's power. And it's these really catastrophic firearms. But, yeah. and what you see is that 
uh, Ashitaka's arm, basically where the demons cursed him, has gone crazy yeah. and wants He's to He's got a kill. crazy forearm strength. <laughs> yes, and he wants to <laughs> basically murder uh, uh, Lady Eboshi. But what ends up happening is that Osa says, We are lepers. The world hates and fears us. But she, she took us in and washed our rotting flesh and bandaged us. <coughs> Osa. Life is suffering. It is hard. The world is cursed, but still, you find reasons to keep living. I'm sorry, I'm making no sense. I really felt like that, the you find reasons to keep living, is the ultimate goal of being able to go past that rage, which you see a lot of these older deities not being able to do because their livelihood is being taken away from them, right? Uh, yeah. But but the people who survive at the end of the day are those who keep on finding reasons to live. Yeah. So I really, really like that. Quote. I like how he's about to, he's like saying something so important and significant. He's like, life is suffering. It is hard, but we find a, li- a reason to live. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not making any sense. It's like, come on, man. Keep going. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> preach, Grandpa. Preach. It's like when Biden was de- debating and he was about to go. And he's like, oh, my time's up. Never mind. I'm just going to back down. I know. <laughs> Yeah. Any other favorite moments from anyone else? Um, yeah, so some favorite line from the movie. For me, at towards the beginning of the movie, um, the elder tells Ashitaka when he's about to leave, like, to go to the West and confront the evil. And she tells him, There is evil at work in the land to the West, Prince Ashitaka. It's your fate to go there and see what you can see with eyes unclouded by hate. You may find a way to lift the curse. You understand? Yes. This definitely resonates with the the theme of seeing the beauty and doing the right thing, even even though there's so much wrong happening all around you. It sort of brings us back to what we were talking about earlier, how with all this destruction between humanity and nature, you have these two characters, San and Ashitaka, who are just like, they're just fighting for what they believe in and what's good, even though they're sort of on opposing sides. And even though there's really no clear path to victory, and they don't know if they're going to win or not, but um, they're still going to try, which which makes them really noble. So, mm-hmm. you know, in the end, I feel like this film acts as an allegory to, mm. like we talked about earlier, that never-ending struggle between human civilization and the natural world. And right. how it's a cycle where there's no clear victory. Um, nobody's certain of a victory on either side. But even though there's no happy ending to the struggle... And even though there's hate and destruction, there's still things that are worthy of life and things yeah. that are worth uh, fighting for. And th- I think that that's the enduring message, really, that to try to still live in peace with nature, even though all, all this destruction is going on. And that was a great one because that was my other quote as well that I was going to put on. But I'll pick my uh, 1A or 1B quote. It's, um, it's when um, uh, after Song gets shot down and uh, she's out there like fighting Lady... Lady Aboshi's like getting yeah. up in there and shit. Yeah, and yeah. uh and then Ashitaka runs up in there. He's like, no, this yeah. is what hatred looks like. This yeah. is what it does when it catches hold of you. It's eating me alive and soon it will kill me. Yeah. Uh, but like think Great about like yeah. I wanted to, I wish I had the shirt that had my chest <laughs> yeah. open, but uh, yeah. but the reason why I love that quote is um it goes back to why I love the movie so much, which is the the themes right so uh i'm actually going to take a contrarian view i don't think there's a villain in this movie contrary to what i said earlier there's no villain in this movie it's (laughs) it's it's really baldwin had a quote about like 
you know, you must see with your eyes on cloud with hate, except there, see the good and evil, see the evil and yeah. good. This is basically what Yoda was preaching in Star mm. Wars, okay? The balance within the Force. Oh, <sighs> good old Yoda. Uh, but then really, <laughs> like, think about it. Like, the reason why I say there's no villain in this movie is because uh, here's, my, here's my hot take. Skip is... Skip. <laughs> skip. <laughs> Lady Eboshi is not a bad person. She just went about accomplishing her own goals in a way that's contrarian to spirit force folks. Mm-hmm. You know, she mm-hmm. saves women from brothels and gives them rewarding work. Although she gets caught up in killing the forest spirit, but you know, the forest you spirits know. are focused on killing humans, you know, yeah. like cost of business, the cost of business. And so there's <laughs> yeah, no, <that's> <laughs> exactly there. No, both sides care about their causes. Both are trying to accomplish it, but unfortunately in violent ways, Neither side is inherently evil. They both want the best for their own representatives. And I think what Ashitaka is, is that symbiotic standpoint that tries to combine both forces together. Think about at the end of Mass Effect 3. Very controversial game here, but you can either choose to control <laughs> the Reapers, choose to destroy oh, yeah. the Reapers, or choose to like combine with the Reapers. That's kind of what I think Ashitaka is trying to do here. So, Do you remember, do you remember your first choice? Yeah, I straight up shot them. I was like, F these Reapers. How dare they destroy the people? Um, I joined the Reapers. <laughs> but, of course you would, Ray. But like, that's what I love about this movie, right? It's because it, it's person versus person. It's person versus society. It's person versus nature. Person versus self. And most importantly, person versus fate. And how they can rise up wow. to meet it. So mm-hmm. there's nothing evil in the movie. It's all about conveying very complex themes that happen in real life. But then how can you put this in a digestible manner that not just children enjoy, but then adults too. So that's, that's my take. I want to go ahead and add one thing to it. I would say that the reason why that it's, uh, you know, you're saying that there's really no villain. It's really, it's because it, 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 because we all are our own worst enemy almost. I feel like, because one of the other things too, is that it talks about resilience, right? The, Mm -hmm. the, everything still kind of survives or moves on. And I want to take one example from real world. Um, You know, look at uh, Chernobyl for an example, right? Mm -hmm. That was something, uh, a mass destruction that was caused by humans. But what ends up happening is that even though it's not a place where humans can live, nature still survives. Nature still takes over. And that's the thing that I think we should, you know, really take into account is that you know, we're the ones who can be able easily to be extinct. The earth will continue to go on. That's a really good point, Renee. There's so many moments in this movie that I loved. Um, I have a whole list of it here. Honestly, the, my favorite part, and I couldn't wait to see this part, was watching it again, is when the part where Ashitaka um, is shot and he's walking away from Irontown and he rescues um, San and he's riding on the back of Yakul and he falls off. And I don't know why he laughs. I lol this part, but it's I know, when the her her wolf like starts gnawing on yeah, his head. I know yeah. you like, oh, that. Was <laughs> I was like, damn. <laughs> Every time I see that scene, I fucking lol so much. And just For the sure. way that it was, he's just like laying there face down. And he's like, uh <laughs> mauled. That was a pretty mauled. jarring scene to watch. If you're like a kid, you're like, whoa, I'm like, <laughs> damn, dude, he just got shot too. Um, <laughs> But I also love when the wolves are like taking every opportunity to eat something because they want to eat the apes and they're like, I'll crunch your face off. And then can we eat, you know, Ashitaka? And then they're also like, what about the elk? 
can we eat him? <laughs> it's like, Tana's be like, no, stop eating everything. Okay, but who's had dogs? Dogs eat everything all the time. <laughs> That's that true. That is Very true. consistent yeah. with the character. What was your impact of anime when you were growing up? It was uh, absolutely in- influential in my life. And it was interesting is like the the anime that I was really in, that I was introduced to when I was really young was of course Sailor Moon, um, but oh, bu- classic, bu- <laughs> classic, Bubblegum Crisis, Black Magic, all these really great um, anime that have really strong female protagonists. You you just weren't seeing that kind of representation in like uh, Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. So mm-hmm. being able to have like that outlet where it was just like a bunch of uh, women or girls who basically could flex and not really care about what like yeah. the guy was doing or whatever. Like um, it was really empowering to be able to do that. And so it even got to the point where you know, at school we'd have like my girlfriends and we would be a different sailor scout and things like that. So I was always <laughs> yeah. okay. Who was tuxedo mask? It depended on the flavor of the day. Oh, oh, oh snap! Oh, snap! Who did you like more, Renee? Did you like Did you like Tuxedo Mask more, or I think it was Moon Moonlight Night? Moonlight Night. Yeah, who did you prefer? Even though the oh, same person. I know, right? Um, I preferred Moonlight Night because he was actually useful. Tuxedo Mask was like, yeah, so just throws a rose. Just I know exactly. I've, I've, my work here is done. You haven't done anything. <laughs> Anyone else with any favorite childhood anime or importance of anime in their in their upbringing? Ball Z. Oh Dude, man, we're all Z fans. That I can't tell you how many times like I was at home and my mom told me to shut shut up as I was trying to go Super Saiyan. <laughs> <laughs> Just yell. Powers over nine thousand. Yeah. How did you feel well, how, when Goku yeah. finally turned Super Saiyan three? And this <laughs> is what it means to go. Even further beyond. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you were doing, Baldwin, in your room? Pretty much, man. Just like I thought I could do it. Go Super Saiyan, dude. You didn't have a hernia or anything like that. <laughs> not at not at eight years old. I think I, was right. I might have like popped a blood vessel. I was just about to say, pop a yeah. blood vessel in your <laughs> Right, right. Oh, exactly. I think anime for me. I'm gonna be honest. I wasn't super into anime. I think I was more of like a. A, a proxy fan because my sister was super into anime, Sailor Moon, Neon Genesis. The only anime that I really loved, I don't know if it's well known, but Guyver. Anyone know who? Like, remember <laughs> yeah. Completely traumatized by it, but yes, I watched it all. Man, incredible. I just want to say, like, I mean, gosh, you know what anime was really good on top of Dragon Ball Z? Gundam. Gundam yes. Wing was was amazing. I mean, you had Hero who had like this emo boy that always wore a green tank top and it was surprising <laughs> was never cold. Exactly. I mean, dude was incredible. And so I loved his <laughs> character because then I played Final Fantasy VIII with Squall who was another mm. emo sad boy. And go. I was, had this recurring theme of these emo sad boys in my life. My I God. mean, an emo sad boy? <laughs> oh, for sure. I'll, raise your hand if you had an emo phase. Oh, oh come yeah. on. Absolutely. <laughs> my <laughs> Chemical Romance, the, you know, the used <laughs> Yellow story corn, yeah. of the year. Long hair. Most, I mean, that was that was my whole adolescent years. I was like, yep, sure. man, life is hard. Tsunami was the MVP. Yeah, just, tsunami. just thank you. <laughs> yes. Attack on Titan. Anyone? Attack on Titan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that Dude, was yeah. also I just, a good one. I just started watching that. Actually, I just finished the first season, so I'm like really excited. 
I, did anyone else think the forest spirit was creepy AF oh, yeah, too? For sure. Yeah. Totally. That terrified me as a kid. That human I, face yeah, and the I, chicken feet. Oh, yeah. I think it's like, it's like what Hayao Miyazaki felt like was a more realistic and adult way of representing things though. He didn't like dumb it down and make it childlike. Mm-hmm. He made it real right. and creepy and it's for adults. So yeah. Um, one question that we have is what are your thoughts on global messages of Asia's contribution to pollution and climate change? Oh, we're going to there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Wait, yeah. which, which country in Asia? Let's just, we gotta, we gotta narrow it down. I, I think uh, by proxy, because they're alluding to it, it has to count towards China. 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 Yeah. I was gonna, my first thought was China. All right, who wants Anyone to take this first? Th- Alan, like, please. Alan, you sound like uh, you're ready to go. <laughs> He's squaring <laughs> up to, to this question. Come on, Alan, let's go. Well, let me let me answer this question by breaking it down by a couple couple uh, segments, just to make sure I answer it as thoroughly as possible. So, what are my thoughts on the global messages of Asia's contribution to pollution and climate change? Okay, so let me first start off by saying, um, so as of as it stands right now, uh, yes. China is a significantly large contributor to, to pollution right now. And, and what are the reasons why? China is in the process of uh, continuing to build up their industrial economy. Mm-hmm. By doing so, what they're doing is, of course, they're, a large portion of China, especially in central China, is still you know, rural in a sense. And in order for them to try to get themselves to a quote-unquote first world country uh, status in that sense, is to continue building up their in- industry. So what does that imply? It means that they are burning a lot of coal. They're basically building up all the factories in order to get to the point where they themselves don't have to continue producing as much in order to sustain, basically do what the, you know, Europe did back in the early Mm. days and what the United States did in order to get themselves to a status to which they turned themselves more to a service country rather than Uh uh, an industrial country. So what Mm. are my thoughts on that? I think it's terrible. But at the same time, like we, similar to this movie, I'm going to relay it back to Princess Mononoke. How do we look at that aspect and then also address the fact that if we were to say, stop doing exactly what you're doing, you're destroying the planet. What does that mean for the people who actually live in that country? Do we continuously allow them to not go into a, uh, I suppose, a, um, let's just say a climate area or go into a world in which they don't have to rely on coal? Um, mm. I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated question and, a, and, a, and an answer that I'm not qualified to answer. But these are my thoughts. And the reality is that China is trying to pull themselves out of that uh, third world country status in order to be a big player in the global aspect. Uh, interesting little tidbits I wanted to just share with everyone of what I, uh, some of the research that I did. When they wanted to distribute it here in the U.S., Dis, uh, Miramax, which was a Disney subsidiary at the time, wanted to cut out culturally confusing aspects of the film. Basically, they Everything. wanted to cut the... the yeah. <laughs> like, you see this film? Gone. Yeah. <laughs> God, these people. So, pop quiz, who yeah. was the U.S. producer? Who oh brought God. it to the U.S.? Do you know? If you know the answer, don't say it. <laughs> I know Wait, the answer, but then I shouldn't we have study for this pop? No, I don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the not answer? Disney? Harvey Weinstein. Right? <laughs> there was basically a Harvey Weinstein wanted to try to cut a lot of the culturally ambiguous yeah. uh, or culturally specific things about it. So he, he wanted to cut the movie from 135 minutes down to 90. 
but Miyazaki was like, nope. So Harvey yeah. raged and like cussed out and everything like that. And then what happened is that it's rumored that either Miyazaki or his producer sent Harvey a katana saying no cuts. Mm. That's it. Boss. Damn. Got him awesome. good. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I heard they wanted to change a bunch of other things too. Like apparently the the movie didn't fit the typical Hollywood formula at the time. Like mm-hmm. there wasn't really a, a huge romance between the two leads. They wanted mm-hmm. more of a love story. Thank and, God there yeah. wasn't. I know, not necessary. Like, I would, would kind of like, yeah, make it not necessary. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they wanted more exposition so that the Western audiences would be able to follow the story more. But Miyazaki was like, nah, bro, nah. <laughs> Yeah. I think we're pretty smart. I think uh, so. I think that actually goes really well into this next thing that I wanted to actually talk to you guys about. Have you guys heard of the Bechdel test? Heard of it. Okay. So What's just that? really briefly, the Bechdel test is, was originally inspired back in 1985, uh, installment uh, by Alison Bechdel, who it's named after a uh, comic ah. titled Dykes to watch out for. And it features a character with three basic requirements for a, a movie. So basically, those three requirements are it has to have at least two women in it, they have to talk to each other, and they have to discuss something besides a man. Mm. So although this role is not a guarantee for actual quality, but at least it, it tells us a little bit more about uh, representation of women in our media. And just so that you understand, because basically what we want to be able to do is portray three-dimensional characters that don't revolve their mm. entire lives around men. Just a little tidbit, in 2016, a third of the top 50 films in the box office did not feature female characters talking to each other in any meaningful way. So Gosh, you, not <laughs> so you Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there's many different jumping off points from this, mm. but for an example, if you go to tvtropes.org there's, uh, and type in useful notes, Bechdel test, that's B-E-C-H-D-A-L, you can be able to see various different uh, variations of this test. And, you know, that's actually what's interesting, uh, I feel like for us and what we do at Real Asian Podcast is we really try to uh, look at uh, movies that have rules about inclusion for, for Asians. But we actually kind of even go a little step further and really try to look at um, like Asian productions where they're the ones at the mm-hmm. table, right? Making the executive mm-hmm. decisions, not just, uh, you know, in the background, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So there's there's lots of different tropes you can look up. Take a look at what our top 50 uh, movies are and you're going to probably see most of them uh, don't revolve around being able to have a character there uh, that's a woman that actually has any meaningful uh, relationship. Yeah. Is the Bechdel test widely known in Hollywood? Yes, Or is, is this more... Okay. And yeah. is there something that they're institutionally implementing that they're like, oh. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, I, it's, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the main reason for, why is because you still see that even today uh, where yeah. uh, financiers um, are trying to in, um, like basically influence the way that movies are written and directed and how many characters and how many A-listers has to be in it to be able to consider it for being financed. And so it definitely uh, is not something that executive producers really care about per se. Um, and because one of the, one of the uh, <laughs> variations. Like, like women talking to each other. What? I would well, never spend like, money blasphemy. Like well, like for an example, <laughs> one of the variations is called the Makomori test. How many of you guys have seen Pacific Rim? 
Yep. Yes, oh, I yeah. have. It's Great. a terrible right? movie. Loved they it. Only- <laughs> <laughs> but they only had one female lead, and while the character arc didn't revolve around a male male character, it still didn't pass the test because there wasn't any other woman that she could be able to talk That's to. True. Right. Mm-hmm. But she still had a really three-dimensional character fully fleshed out you could be able to see her trauma and and see her work through it right but if but it was only one person right so that's the thing is like Mm. i i think we have to be more conscientious of it but i don't i don't think it should be like and here's where my gripe keeps coming in but whenever anyone talks to me about this is you can't just tokenize (laughs) our you can't tokenize the asian representation you can't tokenize you know black latino lgbt right and, and so that's kind of part of it is like, that's why it's kind of a double-edged sword to to relate only to the Bechtel test uh, as far as whether the quality of something or like the character development, things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you want to go through your other pop quiz question? Oh, yeah. My other pop quiz question is, <laughs> uh, how much did Princess Mononoke gross in the box office globally? Now, Princess this one Mononoke. was, yeah, that was Princess Mononoke many years what? I, I did i did the study on this so i know the answer okay, okay what, go what's ahead the go over, for what's it. the over i don't know i don't know the end i, I want to guess no it what's the over under though what's the over under give me an over under uh 200 million under baldwin say, says under I'm gonna say un- and i'm, I'm going to translate under. this over to usd just to make it easier for uh us to <laughs> okay. gauge okay i'm gonna say under under 200 million I'm gonna say uh, Han. Uh, I'm gonna say 78 million. I'm that cynical. <laughs> I don't oh, think wow. it, I don't think it did well here in America. Wait, U.S. Mm-hmm. right or or worldwide? She asked globally. worldwide. Yeah. Oh, yeah. globally. Oh shit, my bad. <laughs> it's okay, Ray. Well, if that's the case, 100 billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Revise your answer. Revise. Oh, uh, I'll still say under. All right. Okay. Yeah. I know that it made a whole ton of money in Japan, but not a lot when it came to Western audiences in the US. So I'm going to go under. So the total answer based off of IMDb is 169.8 million. Nice. Mm, that's pretty good. Yeah. Nice. So I'm a numbers guy, but so the budget, I'm going to translate everything over to USD because, oh God, I'm colonial here. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> we forgive you. Uh, but, in, but in Japanese yen, it's 2.4 billion. Boom. Translate that over. <laughs> it's, it's, so the budget for the film was uh, 22.9. Let's just say a round number of 23. The USA mm. gross was 5 million. So clearly you're right like this wasn't a popular film in the u.s audience but then of course like you think about how it was marketed as well so that was another aspect of the low revenue as well worldwide gross is about 100 let's just say 170 million so that's a profit of just under 150 million usd which is about a profit margin Mm. of 84 percent and 84 percent profit margin is actually quite high so per stephen stephen follows.com which tracks movie stats uh, typical profit margins on movies is 42%. What does this 84% actually imply? It, it means that at the end of the day, movies that, that do really well or perform really well in the box office are ones that have really strong stories. And I think mm-hmm. with Princess Mononoke, and specifically with movies from Studio Jill, Ghibli, 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 my apologies, <laughs> is that uh, at the end of the day, like you can, you don't have to 
expend all this money on new technology, CGI, etc. Nothing that there's nothing wrong with it, but at the end of the day, to the core, the story and how well you treat the audiences is what really drives the fascination and audiences coming back to the movie theaters, right? Paranormal Activity, for example. Not not that scary, but it fascinated people because the story behind mm-hmm. it was new, re- revolutionary. When Princess Mononoke and with Studio Ghibli, Ghibli films, it's all about how you treat the story and the themes that don't play down or talk down to those audience members. Yes. So that's just what I wanted to leave out there on the table. Could you see a live action Princess Mononoke happen? And what would it take for it to not be ruined? You know that it's in the talks. I, I know it's in the talks and unfortunately they're going to have, you know, uh, they're going to have someone like Tobey Maguire play Ashitaka. <laughs> yeah, they're going to do my boy wrong. Oh, they're going to have like Eddie, like they're, I don't know who. Eddie Murphy. They're going to have like some oh, God. generic white girl play, you know, San and Lady Aboshi. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a, it's going to be bad. <laughs> wait, wait, wait but do you know who the actual voice actors were? Right. Yeah, they're yeah. all yeah. During the nineties, yeah. Claire Danes was the it girl, so she played yeah. on. Right? Claire Danes, yeah. oh man. Romeo Dillian Anderson as Morrow. Okay, but she was. Uh, yeah, I actually think the voices were really well done. Like, well, that's actually part of good. it. Yeah, yeah. 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 the characters really well. Very rarely will I say dubs are are superior than the original, mm. but uh, Princess Mononoke's dubs were really really good. Yeah. I, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna be honest. I have a very controversial take. I love dubs. So to those purists out there who hate, like, oh, Goku should not sound like that. He needs to have the, ah! No, no, no. I want Sean Thurman's voice. I am the... I am the light in the darkness. I want that voice. <laughs> I like, Cindy I like here says hear. Eddie Murphy should be the elk. So I guess the elk will actually have uh, talking. Yeah, yeah. For, for um, all of Hayao Miyazaki's dubs, though, like all of his movies, to me, I really enjoy their dubs. Like they capture yeah. the characters so, so well. Well, even, even Miyazaki says himself that I found. He said, who is to say that a subtitled print is any more authentic? Um, when you watch the subtitle version, you are probably missing just as many things. There is a layer and a nuance you're not going to get. Film crosses so many borders these days. Of course, it's going to get distorted. So even him, he's kind of like, eh, you know, you can take it any slice you want. Okay, yeah. but please don't don't give it to Disney to do. Like they ruined, <laughs> ruined, ruined Lion King. I mean, commercialize who, everything. Right, exactly. Who yeah. did Life of Pi? I think there's a possibility that we could have a live action oh. if it was by the same director. Wait, was that a um Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Yes, Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Yes. Yeah, See? Right. Put it in Ang Lee Tan, I feel more yeah. confident, but put it in, in any Disney director's hands, probably not. So you do see it possible, but it would have to oh, be. Oh, I don't better. want it to happen, obviously. Yeah. But. I you know that I you'll think it's possible. You don't think it's so? Like, I mean, it's like the Dragon Ball Z show. Oh, like, don't dodge that abomination. Oh my god. There's just some things you can't really put into live action. Like the the camera movements, how they track Ashitaka riding on his uh, on on on, Yaku. on my boy Yaku, yeah, and like the the background, um, the backdrop of the the planes in the back in the forest. You just you just can't really capture all of that in live action. So I don't know well, if it can be done. One thing I would definitely say is that uh, if we if we remove it from just being purely uh, CG to doing something closer to what we've seen with James Henson and like the Mandalorian 
and mm. uh, Dark Crystal is using a mixture of both puppetry and CG. And I love puppets, so I'm sorry, <laughs> but I think that would be the best way to be able to convey some of these uh, dark spirits, right? And these demons and things like that. Um, if you had, if you guys haven't had a chance to check it out, uh, my, my girl Aquafina is also in the Dark Crystal, and it's actually really good. Yeah, like the puppetry, yeah. you you tend to suspend disbelief because it doesn't enter into that uncanny valley, which makes mm. CGI not palatable. So that's the mm. only way I can see it happening. But right. I, otherwise, I'm not co-signing it. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> protesting it. You're like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> I'll yeah. keep my opinion open. Okay, we do have an audience question. We have one from Emma. Hi, Emma. Um, she says, y'all, y'all did such a wonderful job talking about how Miyazaki portrays complex narratives and shows how these diverse and con- conflicting sides can come together and find moments of peace and understanding. This separation could be interpreted as Miyazaki offering an optimistic or pessimistic end to the movie. Or perhaps he is simply leaving the dynamic open-ended leaving the ending dynamic and open-ended and up to the audience. What kind of ending do y'all think Miyazaki offers in this movie and why? Okay, so, you know, as much as I said about how, you know, there's a clear villain, um, at the, the thing is, is the movie itself does paint it so that it is open-ended on purpose. It, it wants us to have that dialogue, that thoughtfulness, that conversation within ourselves and uh, essentially about, our own impact. And so the way that the story is is told makes it so that, you know, if we we have any sense of of self um, and any sense mm-hmm. of others, like we would actually stop to think about it and and try to understand, you know, and just be more mindful. So I, I think it is open-ended. I don't think it's pessimistic. I actually think it's optimistic. I think it's painfully optimistic. And very mm. hopeful that we will be able to come to this uh, movie and be able to be, you know, with eyes unclouded, uh, be able to be open minded about how we're treating the world around us. And I want to say this only because uh, Studio Ghibli always has something that's going on culturally. That's the reason why they make the movie. That's what kind of what you're seeing. Like, yeah, there wasn't the, the inconvenient truth, but also there we were coming to this this tipping point of no return for environmentalism and mm. we're we're sadly there so now all we can try to do is just stem the bleeding to be able to make sure that we mm. just like add a couple more tens hundreds more years to human right. civilization oh that was very poignant um i i will say very quickly i i agree wholeheartedly and one thing i want to add to your point is that what I think Miyazaki's trying to say is, yes, the world is not perfect. And going back to what I said earlier, Miyazaki doesn't treat his audience members as a child. It wants to yes. say to you, the world is not perfect. It's not ever going to be. But that is not a pessimistic view. That's actually an optimistic view because you hand, the, you know, what does Whitney Houston's song say about like, you know, the children as the next generation, whatever, like everything um, about them? We are believe the, greatest love the of children of our future. The children yeah, are- yeah, so like that's what it really is. Like it's about letting the future generation know like the world is not inherently perfect. However, with that being said, how can you interpret this ending of this movie and make it better or a, a more 
more perfect place and whatever mm. vision you may seem that to be. It's very similar to what Inception has in the ending. And I know people are going to shake their heads at me. But the <laughs> top is continuously spinning like, hey, wait, is it fake or is it real? It's like, <laughs> it's meant to put you, it's meant Option to have, force these, conf- yeah, exactly. It's forced it's force you to have these conversations because at the end of the day, the only thing that really drives progress is conversations and meeting people in the middle to progress forward, not sticking in your echo chamber and never mm. progressing. I, I totally agree with what both of you guys said. Um, I, but there's a part that I disagree with. I do think it's optimistic, but I also think it's pessimistic in a way because it's sort of a, a microcosm of Hayao Miyazaki's worldview. He is very pessimistic about human nature in the world and the gradual destruction of it. Even though like all this chaos is happening, all this destruction is happening, he does see the opportunity for people to find something more out of that, to find love, to find something worth um, fighting for, something to live for. And there's, there's also one thing that I wanted to mention. Uh, we talked it about a few times, the idea that there's no real villain. I feel like the real villain is the idea of hatred. And that's what really like pushes people to do these horrible things that they're doing. So, and I think that right. the, the movie is mm, like constantly just just um fighting against those those forces so a little so we got a unite that's a good one so that's a really good one. so um we're we're heading into the final phase of our episode and we're going to close this out with this segment we're going to go classic make your case who's your mvp of princess mononoke well they already know my answer it's 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 your cool why right. why you first why <laughs> this is this is so easy right okay <laughs> MVP is your cool. Why? Because that 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 dude was carrying <laughs> Ashitaka's dead ass body back to yeah. the freaking force. Okay, and my mm-hmm. man with very little screen time was was made the most of his minutes. Okay, that's like yeah. that's like six man coming off the bench and scoring twenty. This so guy, you're, you're saying his plus minus in the movie is really plus high. minus is like plus a hundred, sure. and everyone else is like baseline zero. Because you're cool, yeah. like think about it. He 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 is very loyal to Ashitaka, but at the same time, mm-hmm. he has his own agency to determine. Hey, like I'm gonna stay here or yeah. I'm gonna go back. And, and without him being the driving force of being there in the beginning, uh, taking him uh, Ashitaka's lame ass all the way across <laughs> this magical river or journey. He wouldn't get there. Ashitaka on his feet. He wouldn't got to Iron Iron yeah. Town in in yeah. a couple of days time. My man, you're cool. MVP. You're cool. You're cool. Be 24. Yes. yes. <laughs> you make a really good point, case, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I got to go with my boy Ashitaka. Of course, you know how can mm. we not include the the main protagonist in the running for MVP? He's the bridge between these two worlds, and he could he can play that role because he sees no hate, right? And he's a healing force that reminds people of the right thing to do and he sees them as more than just an object he shows them respect and he he values lives he has respect for humans mm. even though he's fighting against them and mm. you know he's incredibly heroic and noble he's always trying to do the right thing like even though he has this curse that's going to kill him he ends up helping resolve this conflict of wars so in my eyes he's like completely unselfish and i think he's meant to represent the best of us the, the best of humans and, you know, of course, like he has plenty of his moments throughout the movie, like 
when he uh, that takes off his shirt and like yeah. extremely gratuitous scene in front of the lady. Yeah, which what else by the way, I don't know why he's missing any nipples, but anyways, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were taken over by the disease. Yeah, yeah. yeah. they just fall yeah. off. <laughs> also, um, you know, remember the epic scene where um, Son and Lady Boshi are are fighting, and he he just does this like conor mcgregor walk up to them <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> part like it's nothing that was like yeah awesome. yeah 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 so, this so is what hatred awesome. looks like yeah, yeah. it's it's strong all case. testament to his character his actions and yeah. how he's trying to help end this destruction so okay i'll, I'll go and then renee you'll you'll close it out for us okay all right. okay all right okay so <sighs> i'm gonna Present my case. I'm gonna filibuster you guys right now. So <laughs> for for my MVP, for my MVP is going to be Lady Boshi, which I know is a controversial pick, and um, it's not because I hate the environment, but the reason why I think Lady Boshi is the MVP of this movie is because I find her the most compelling character. Yes, she's the perceived villain of the movie, but she isn't evil, right? She isn't your classical evil maniacal villain which makes her a very complex character. Not only is she strangely the only character with an English accent, she is fearless. <laughs> My favorite line of hers is at the end when she's about to kill the, the, the forest spirit and she's like, watch, clo- I mean, wait, hold on. <clears throat> watch closely, everyone. I'm going to show you how to kill a god, a god of life and death. The trick is not to fear him. And I was like, damn. It's cold. That's, Ray, you I made know. me fall out of my chair. Come on. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That was my best English, uh, English accent. But Irontown is like this exemplification. And it's kind of like a microcosm of what she believes, what humanity can aspire to be mm. in society at large, right? She provides lepers a home, mm-hmm. a job, mm-hmm. a purpose again. When they've been casted out by their communities and by the world, we learn that one of her motivations for killing this forest spirit is that she hears of a cure and she wants to use that cure to cure the lepers. She advocates for female empowerment, rescuing women from brothels and giving them freedom to speak and eat whenever they want during 14th century Japan, which was rare at this time, very patriarchal society. So I believe Iboshi envisions a new world where women and the outcasted are accepted and the oppression of men and warlords are no more. Kind of like kind of the direction that we kind of want to head to now, right? But the means to get there in her philosophy is to industrialize, utilize technology at the cost of the forest. I think it does encapsulate where we are today, knowing that the human footprint will continue to grow no matter what. What we talked about with the advances advancement of technology we think about prolonging life and the advances of medical technology well with humans living longer and more humans of that there's a trade-off to that and unfortunately that trade-off is the very world that we live in today nice nice one Ray. yo i closed my case well (laughs) gosh you know you make a very very convincing argument about lady aboshi um, but I'm going to have to say my MVP is very, very uh, self-centered and, and uh, <laughs> it's all about me. So my MVP <laughs> is San because I see her as incredibly relatable. I see myself mm. in her. Uh, she sticks to her, she always sticks to her guns or in this case, her, her daggers. And she really goes after the things that she cares about. She's hyper vigilant about making sure that 
uh, hers and her and those uh, that matter to her are taken care of or at least cares very uh, viciously and you know mm. so i you know what i really like about what she is she's industrious as well in her own right she's incredibly caring and thoughtful and also at the very end of this she also is, does try to seek reconciliation, right? And I feel mm. like Ashitaka actually uh, rubs off on her a little bit at that point. Uh, but, you know, she she was empowered mm-hmm. to go ahead and go after the things that matter to her. And, you know, and she really tried to be able to, uh, you know, save everyone that from her side, right? Like save um, Okoto even uh, to be able to make sure that she can preserve what matters to her. Like I said, like, I think that's the main reason why San is my MVP. Also, she has a super cool mask. So, yeah. yeah. And I want to thank everyone uh, for participating and enjoying listening to us on this call. I want to thank my co-host. And I especially want to thank CSU Monterey Bay for having us today. So thank you, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this, today's show. This is what hate looks like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks,